Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, love at First, first listen. listen. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today, it's great to have Sam Harris on the podcast. Sam is the author of five New York Times bestsellers, including The End of Faith, Letter to a Christian Nation, The Moral Landscape, Free Will, Lying, and Waking Up. The End of Faith won the 2005 Penn Award for Nonfiction. His writing and public lectures cover a wide range of topics, neuroscience, moral philosophy, religion, meditation practice, human violence, rationality, but generally focus on how a growing understanding of ourselves and the world is changing our sense of how we should live. He also hosts the Making Sense podcast, which was selected by Apple as one of the iTunes best and has won a Webby Award for best podcast in the science and education category. Sam, thanks for making the time to chat with me. Uh, happy to be here, Scott. I'm really looking forward to this chat. And I really uh, want to set the tone by saying I appreciate your intellectual honesty um, and your intellectual bravery. Um, sometimes one can just be intellectually honest, but it happens to go with the flow of the current of the culture. Mm. But you're intellectually honest and you're, uh, you don't mind being intellectually honest if it uh, doesn't always win you friends. So I really want to, um, to say I appreciate that, even if I don't necessarily appreciate, uh, if I don't necessarily agree <laughs> with everything you say mm. in your arguments. And I thought we could go through very carefully today um, lots of areas of mutual interest and work through them very carefully and, and see if we can uh, arrive at some, uh, some maybe even transcendent conclusions. So to Sure. Say. Yeah. Happy um, to do it. Cool. So since this is the psychology podcast, I did want to start a little bit with your, your development, your child development. And um, that, that's obviously uh, formed some role in who you are today and the kind mm. of interests you have. Um, I'm curious what you're like in a child as a child and in particular in uh, the sort of way you interacted with other people and in the way that you, which you engaged with the truth as a child. Mm. Well, insofar as I remember, actually, I just read a, um, uh, I guess it was a fourth or fifth grade, um, you know, review of me by one of my, one of my teachers. I just happened to find it. My mother happened to produce this 
so it was kind of hilarious to see uh, the who I am now prefigured in, in who I seemed to be then. Um, but I, I think I, you know, I was certainly recognizable to myself uh, as a little kid. Uh, I think I was very logical and rational and, you know, argumentative. And, and I was, you know, I was a little debater and uh, negotiator. Um, and I was I was very interested in many different things. So I was I was a good student, but I wasn't especially happy. I don't think I was I was um, I was a, a perfectionist and very hard on myself, I would say. I mean, I, I think I was very self-critical. Um, my dad left when, uh, I was two and a half. So I, you know, I, you know, I don't know insofar as the, the pop psychodynamics of that are, are, uh, easily interpreted. I mean, I think I kind of internalized that and, um, you know, that was, uh, that, that framed my childhood pretty decisively. Um, but, um, you know, I had, I had a great mom and I have a great mom and, and, uh, you know, it was, uh, yeah, it was it was not an, definitely not an unhappy childhood, but it was it, it, the thing that that um, really changed my life. I mean, I'm sure we'll get to this, but you know, the, 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 when when my introspective, contemplative life started around the age of 18, that was a very clear break with who I used to be in in in, in terms of access to um, anything like tranquility or, you know, any kind of ease of being in the world. So I don't remember, you know, I, I'm sure I had my moments as, as a kid that were just, you know, childlike awe and wonder and joy. I, mean, I, I know I, I did have those moments and I had a lot of fun with my friends, but I was, uh, in terms of, in terms of the, the way myself seemed structured, it was always poised to be unhappy as honestly as any self really is. But I, I felt like there was like a layer of perfectionism and self criticism that was, you know, unusually strong, I would say. Were you in the debate club? High school? No, I, I don't think there was. I don't Mike, Mike, if I, if we had a debate club, I didn't notice it, but no, but I was, I still would debate as you, you know, you know, I think one can make the error in looking at uh, your calm demeanor, your tranquility, and kind of assume that, well, there's not much emotion going on. I think one can mm -hmm. easily make that error as they do with a lot of people who um, are uh, go through many years of meditative practice. I was struck by something you said in an interview when you were describing um, leaving uh, your, your, you know, your father was in the hospital, he was dying, you were 17 years old, and you left uh, the hospital. You didn't really feel... Um, uh, full motion in that moment, but you went then watched a movie, is that right? Mm. And 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 all these emotions kind of poured out of you when you were able to kind of uh, fully process or more fully process what was going on through the medium of art. You remember uh, making that point in the interview? Yeah, I, I definitely remember the experience. I mean, so the movie was right on point. It was Terms of Endearment, you know, which has somebody dying of cancer in it, if uh, if memory serves. So. Um, which my dad was, was, was dying of cancer. So, um, yeah, so I, I do remember that where it was, it suddenly gave me access to the kind of the full grief rather than leaving me like the, the Sartrean character, uh, or the, uh, I guess it's Camus in the, in the stranger. Doesn't he get convicted of not crying at his mother's funeral? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah, well, Larry so. David gets convicted of many crimes uh, like that, of social taboo. 
curb your enthusiasm. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I, I bring this up because to me, that was poignant when you told that story about your mm. father. And it, I just wanted to um, bring out a little bit more of the humanity of Sam Harris, I guess, was my point in doing that. Um, I know you don't right. uh, talk about personal things too often, and I certainly don't want to do it in a way that would make you uncomfortable. But I think it's important to, to paint the, a picture of you as human as well. Right. right. Before I go into full Vulcan mode. Yes. Yes. Before we talk about Trump. Well, that is also human, I think. I think my my there, so, there. so-called so Trump derangement syndrome has revealed me to be yeah. all too uh, fraught with emotion. So, <laughs> right. Uh, that's a, that's a good that's a, or uh, as someone your critics would say, uncontrolled emotion, yeah, I guess. Yeah. Uh, not just emotion. Period. OK. Needless to say, I disagree mm-hmm. on that point, but that's a yeah. debate for another time. Now, you were really interested in martial arts early, even in your youth, right? Um, not jujitsu, yeah. but a ninjutsu. Is that right? Yeah, around uh, fourteen, I got into to martial arts, or, or what seemed to be martial arts at the time. I mean, my sense of what is a truly effective martial art has has evolved uh, since then. But yeah, in as a, um, I think I was fourteen when I started training and did that for until I was through college and then stopped for, um, you know, almost 20, 20 plus years. And then, then had a midlife crisis and got in, into Brazilian jujitsu and, and, uh, then got a lot of injuries, but that was, that was fun. Well, let's, let's talk about call your college days before we get into the mm. crisis. So okay. 20 year old crisis. Um, you were in Stanford, uh, you were experimenting with, um, ecstasy related kind of drugs. Is that right? Yeah. Well, I had one MDMA trip that was really decisive for me. And I, that was my, um, I think it was my sophomore year. Yeah. It was my sophomore year at Stanford. And did that play a role in you deciding to, like, you dropped out quite literally mm-hmm. dropped out of Stanford yeah. and go on the spiritual journey went on for 10 years. Yeah. Yeah, sort of. So kind of on paper, it looks like a, a bad idea. You take drugs and you drop out of college. <laughs> uh, but um, that is what happened. And yeah, there, I mean, there was almost certainly a direct connection there. I mean, I think I what I experienced in that first trip was just that the mind was a, a very different place than I gave it credit for, you know, that, that it was possible to experience well-being directly that in a way that's not contingent upon the, th- the success in one's life or you know, anything one thinks one wanted. Right. You know, so I had had a girlfriend break up with me the year before, or I guess, you know, just a few months before, um, and had been pitched into kind of real unhappiness. I, mean, I, I would say, you know, full on depression as a result of that. So it's like my, my happiness had seemed to be totally dependent upon being in a relationship that I, that I, you know, valued and being with someone I loved and, and just my sense of myself completely imploded. Um, and then I had this experience on MDMA, which was a perfect counterpoint to all of that, right? I just realized, okay, that the, there's, there's a door in the mind that can swing open that can leave you uh, with the, the, um, uh, utter certainty of your capacity for your own, you know, freedom, really, psych- really deep psychological freedom that doesn't need a reference point in your life. 
right? You could be on your deathbed. You could be, uh, you know, you, you, you could be that you could, you could tap into this way of being before anything changes in your life. Right. So like it was, it was that, it was that discontinuity between the way I was feeling, you know, and, and, you know, the, and obviously the mind's capacity to feel that way and anything one might, uh, you know, link it to in one's life. Now that I should say, that's also part of what's dysfunctional about drugs, obviously. I mean, if you're, t- I mean, you, what we, we want our sense of well-being to have some connection to the reality of our lives and the reality of the world, because then you're, you know, the alternative is you can be delusional and, and, you know, you could just be a heroin addict who's lying on the couch and, and blissing out based on, on the, the, the pharmacology of the moment, but having, you have a totally dysfunctional life. So I'm not recommending that, but it was just, it was the, the recognition that how I was tending to be by virtue of, of what I was thinking about and what I was paying attention to was, was a, had really become a machine producing my, my unhappiness. Right. And the machine stopped during this you know, six hour period on MDMA. And I could feel as I came down and as I could feel it start up again, I felt, you know, intuitively that I could understand something about the mechanics of this and that there were other ways to, 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 to arrest the, the hideous progress of this machine in my life. And and so that's how I got into meditation and other esoteric things, you know, we could talk about. Well, in terms of esoteric things, it's true. Is it true that you once worked in the security detail for the Dalai Lama? Well, not 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 worked. I I was um, you know I I was really into meditation at that point, and um, that Dalai Lama was doing a a like a month long tour of France, you know, teaching in you know almost in a different city each night. I mean, he was he was practically not more than twenty four hours in any one place. So it was just a, literally a tour of France. Um, and my friends who were also, you know, longtime uh, Buddhist practitioners, many, you know, many of whom had done three year retreats in various meditation centers in in France, um, were organizing this trip. And so I, I got tapped as, as, you know, yet another uh, student of of meditation who who could be part of, you know, of uh, the logistics. And so we got, you know, I, I got put with a few, with a, you know, maybe a dozen other people as part of his security detail, which, you know, didn't strike me as totally inappropriate given I had a, at this point a, a pretty long background in martial arts, but you know, no one else did. Right. So it, was, it really, we weren't really a security detail and we were the buffer between him between his real security detail and the public. Right. So like there were, he had like four secret service guys with guns who were, were his real bodyguards. Right. And you weren't the a, Dalai Lama's bodyguard. No, I, w- I was, I was the, I was, uh, you know, the, uh, but ironically we were the ones who had all the conflict with the press and the public because we were the buffer between the real guys with guns and, and the, you know, the rabble who were, um, could be surprisingly, uh, raucous and weird around the Dalai Lama. It was, it was amazing. I mean, there was actually one moment where somebody literally grabbed him by the robes and turned him around so as to get a, a picture with him, right? So it was like, the, the, you, you know, if you, if you um, spend any time at all in a circumstance like that, you, you do discover some very odd behavior from people. But, um, you know, so it was just a, 
it was an, it was a very interesting way to be with him because I, I got to spend a, you know, a month with him, uh, you know, pretty up close and just to see how he functioned in that, in that mode. And he's a, he's a very self-actualized guy. I mean, he's just a, he's just a, a real mensch. It's a inspiring guy. I love spending time with people like that. I remember I was on a, uh, this is going to sound funny, but I was on a party bus with Mathieu Ricard. Who is, oh yeah. So uh, Mathieu was there too. Yeah. yeah I know Mathieu. Oh, uh, wonderful. Wonderful. We were at a conference together and I can genuinely say that he was, he seemed so content with his being, you know, yeah. there, there's something about a certain um, contentness with being where, you know, people were making, you know, uh, tawdry jokes, <laughs> you know, people were making inappropriate jokes about, uh, the party bus we were on and he laughed, you know, you know, there's yeah. a certain, there's something about an ease yeah. of consciousness where someone, um, can sort of just, uh, get amusement from, from all aspects of human nature. Yeah. I mean, Matthew is a remarkable person. I mean, as you probably know, he, he was a scientist before he became a monk. So he's, yep. he's, he's, uh, yeah. you know, he's got a PhD in molecular biology and, then, you know, has studied studied with some of the greatest Dzogchen teachers of the the 20th century, and and um, yeah, Matt Matthews, a, uh, and he, and he doesn't, you know, as you say, he doesn't take himself seriously. Uh, so he's, um, yeah, he's a he's a wonderful guy. So this 10 year period of your life um, was a very formative period for you. You studied with some very uh, big name leaders in the in the Buddhist tradition of meditation. Um, yeah, studied, facilitated yeah. by in, in some cases facilitated by Matthew. Matthew was translating, you know, every every teaching I got from his teacher, Dugo Kensi Rinpoche, you know, Matthew was translating for. And um, uh, yeah, so I spent some time with with him and his teachers in Nepal. What a wonderful serendipity there. I had no when I brought up Matthew's name about being on a party bus, I had no idea you had spent so much time with Matthew uh, and he was so formative in those the years of your life. So I'm really glad. I'm glad I brought yeah. it up then. <laughs> yeah. I brought yeah. that up. Um, you know, I mean, I, I was really uh, amazed when I, when I looked into this and preparing for this interview and I saw who you studied with, I didn't even know all these people that you, I, I knew the people, but I didn't know you had studied with them. So my eyes widened, you know, um, you got such a firsthand look at, uh, um, not only, you know, the character structure of some of these leaders as well as their teachings. Right. So I'll just mm. mention some names, um, uh, Sayada, Sayada, uh, U Pandita. Uh, U Pandita, yeah. U, oops, sorry, U, U Pandita. Yeah. It's not like university. Yeah. Ooh. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. So can you tell me a little bit about, uh, that experience? Because I think that you uh, had mixed feelings about it. If I'm, if I understand correctly. Yeah. So broadly, I, I, um, when I started practicing meditation, I got into, uh, Vipassana first and Vipassana is this, you know, is tra usually translated as insight meditation. And it comes from the, the oldest school of Buddhism, the, the Theravada, that's the, the Buddhism of, of Southeast Asia, Thailand and Burma, Sri Lanka. Um, and it is the tradition that has given us this boom in mindfulness. Mindfulness is, a, is an export from, from the, you know, the, the Theravada Vipassana teachings. Uh, it's not to say that it doesn't have analogs in other traditions of Buddhism and in, even in other traditions, but it's, you know, mindfulness framed as mindfulness is really, you know, Theravada Buddhism. Um, so I started with that and spent a fair amount of time on retreat 
studying with you know both Western students of the practice, like you know, Joseph Goldstein, who's who is certainly my main Western teacher, but you know Jack Cornfield and Sharon Salzberg and all the people who started you know IMS and um, Spirit Rock. I did most of my retreats at at IMS, at, you know the Insight Meditation Society in in Massachusetts, and um, they brought. Saito Upandita out to teach there. And he was, you know, he was their teacher of, of again, Theravada, Vipassana, you know, insight meditation. And he was a very rigorous kind of martial uh, style teacher who he, he was a monk. And, and when you sat with him, you took, you know, some subset of the monk's vows. So, you, you know, you didn't eat afternoon and you tried to only sleep four hours a night and it was just wall to wall meditation. Um, and so I spent several months on retreat with him. I did, you know, at least uh, I did a two-month retreat, and I think one or two one-month retreats with him. Um, I sat with him in Australia for two months at one point, and um, yeah, that was it was extremely useful. But it, the logic of that practice was something that I, I felt that I eventually graduated from and and, and moved on to I, to a different way of thinking about just, you know, what, why one is, is paying attention to, to one's experience in this way and, and what, what there is to realize about the nature of the mind. Uh, you get a, you, the, the division in, um, conceptually is really between dualistic and non-dualistic forms of mindfulness. I mean, that's, that's the way I, I tend to talk about it uh, when I talk about these things in, in, in waking up my meditation app or in the book by that name. Um, and so then I, I moved on to study with some of these other teachers we'll, we'll talk about, but, uh, but you know, like Matthew's teachers uh, uh, in Nepal, they were teaching a style of meditation uh, called Dzogchen, which is which is a, a non-dual kind of awareness practice, which which is, you know, uh, in some ways the same. I mean, it's, it's not that it's not that there isn't it's not that there's something different to realize ultimately, but it's a different set of instructions, uh, with respect to just, you know, what to pay, what to pay attention to and why. And, um, I think there's a lot that goes by the way of meditation instruction that is ultimately somewhat misleading. And, and, you know, if you get deeply into it, if you, if you really, if your life is about seeking enlightenment at any point, if you really want to, to fundamentally change the firmware of your mind, um, you know, it's possible to really get frustrated and to experience a lot of psychological pain born of one's, you know, spiritual seeking. And and so that's, Dzogchen is a, is a Tibetan teaching, which um, is often translated as great perfection. It, it can also be translated as great completion. Um, so there's a, there's a, you know, the, the, the message is there's, there's a, there's a, a completeness and perfection to the nature of consciousness itself inherently, right? That there's something that to realize about consciousness that you're not producing by your efforts, right? It's not that you're, you're meditating so hard that you, you know, you wind up, uh, uh, perfecting consciousness. No, it's, 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 you're, you're, you're recognizing something that's already there, right? This is not a, a, a something you're manufacturing. And, uh, it's an important distinction because it it's you can at a certain point you can get the sense that you know all the work you're doing contemplatively i mean you know sitting for 
for a dozen hours a day, day after day, week after week, month after month, in many cases, year after year. Um, if you ask yourself why you're doing that, right, there, there can be an implicit uh, logic to it that is uh, both false and and um, uh, uh, unhappiness producing, which is that you, you, you can feel that, you know, you really are bound, right? You're really not free in this moment. And you have to do something rather heroic to get free. I mean, you have, there's a prison you have to escape from, right? You have to, or there's, there's an, there's a disorder in your mind that you have to put right. And, um, even if you're, even if you understand that that's not quite the right way to think about it, there's this tacit sense in each moment that you're not good enough. Your life isn't good enough. Your experience isn't good enough. And that's why you are making these weird efforts in the first place, right? I mean, you want to improve something about your, your mind, right? You're, you're, you're neurotic and you don't want to be neurotic, right? You, you're having anxiety attacks and you don't want anxiety attacks, right? You, um, you know, you, you notice that your relationships are mediocre because you're not all that loving and you can't figure out how to get more loving, right? You know, so it's like you're, you've got a problem you're trying to solve. There's a knot you're trying to untie. And so even if you're given a philosophy which says, no, no, actually, the mind is intrinsically radiant and pure, and you just have to recognize that you're trying to do that because you have a problem that you want to solve, right? You like you you can't you you don't recognize that really, and now you're trying to because you want to put out these various fires in your life. Um, so it's it is a it's a bit of a conundrum how you can ever get to the place where you're not making those kinds of dualistic, you know, problematized efforts and you're actually enjoying what the mind is like before you screw it up by, you know, seeking happiness. And, uh, so yeah, anyway, Dzogchen unties those knots very directly and, and, uh, you know, it's, so it was very useful to, to get the, the time I got with those teachers. I mean, the, my main teacher was Tukurgan Rinpoche and, um, and also Nyosho Ken Rinpoche, and those are both people who, um, uh, Tukur again, I only saw in Nepal, you know, where Matthew and, and was, but um, he wasn't the, you know, he wasn't the primary student of Tukur again Rinpoche. He was, I was dealing with different translators at that point, so. Didn't you study with uh, Dilgo Kiense as well? Yeah, so, yeah, Dilgo Kiense Rinpoche was, was Matthew's main teacher and really one Rinpoche. of the, yeah, the, the great llamas of his time did he appear in a dream of yours before you met him am i making that up <laughs> yeah i forgot where i spoke about that but um i wasn't even sure if that was you yeah. but that was you <laughs> okay yeah yeah no i want actually it's, it's funny now i remember i once to, i to, actually told the dalai lama who dalai lama also studied with Doko cancer he was his Dzogchen teacher um and i told the dalai lama about this dream but in the middle of my telling him this story, I, I realized that the, the, there was no way to tell the story without pointing directly at his face, because that's what Dilgo Kenzie was doing to me in the dream. He was pointing in my face. Um, and the, the dream doesn't make any sense. I mean, I, I can tell you what the dream was. It makes absolutely no sense without pointing. But it is that it's in fact a cultural taboo to point at someone, you know, in Tibet, right? Like this is this is like it's essentially, you know, as far as I understand it, akin to you know giving someone the finger. I mean, it's just rude. And here I'm now, and I've launched in, very enthusiastically into 
telling a dream to the Dalai Lama who I'm sitting directly across from, you know, like there's no, it's just, it's just me and him. And it's just, you know, I've launched into this thing and now I realize I'm about to point in, in his face. Um, so I, I kind of half pointed and I'm not even sure that it was a, it was a coherent story at that point. Um, but, um, no, the dream was actually quite simple and brilliant. Uh, it was one of those dreams where you realize that there seems to be a part of your mind that understands something that you, the dream protagonist that doesn't right? So like I, I was genuinely, so I was in dialogue with, you know, it's obviously some imaginary person in my dream, you know, a product of my own mind. Um, but he was saying and doing things that were totally coherent and in, in, in you know, enlightening actually. Uh, and the, you know, the dream protagonist was fairly stupefied by being in this relationship and the, the the dream protagonist was me, right? So it just it was just one of those moments where where clearly the mind is bigger than than you thought you were in that moment, you know. So it's this kind of part a partitioning of intelligence. But anyway, the dream was um, he was uh, uh, looking directly into my eyes, and he's he was say he was saying, "Tell me." Uh, tell me who you are. And, and I was kind of struggling for, for words. And he's, and he said, tell me, and he pointed directly into my face. And I just kind of, you know, still struggling for words. And he said, tell me. And then he, and then on the third, tell me, he pointed, he said, tell me. And he pointed directly over my shoulder, right? Looking past me as though there was someone directly behind me, but I knew there was no one behind me. Right. And in that, like, and I mean, it, it actually seemed like I've never heard anyone, you know, I've never heard about any Dzogchen master or any other Buddhist master or any master kind of give this sort of intervention. But the, there was something about suddenly having like this, very, the, the intensity of being, you know, being pointed directly to, you know, in my face and then to have it overshoot me, you know, to kind of go over one of my shoulders he had actually just sort of teased out the structure of selfhood in my mind because I realized that there's there is something there is something about this self this sense of being in relationship to oneself that there's a there's an I and a me you know this the, the structure of our our thought is is predicated on this the idea that you can talk to yourself right yeah like 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 if you're the one talking and the one hearing. How does that make any sense, right? You already know the thing you're saying to yourself, presumably, because you're saying it, right? Um, so it's like when I'm, when I, uh, uh, you know, I sit down at this desk and I, um, uh, say, oh, where's that pencil, right? Like, I, I'm, who am I asking? Like, is there someone else in me who needs to be part of this search party, right? Like, it, it makes absolutely no sense. And it, it just strikes, it still strikes me to this day as a kind of brilliant gestural way of revealing that this is a a a false uh, situation, right? That the, the starting point for your paying attention to these things is not what it seems to be. Um, anyway, so that's what the, you know. The, uh, the dream was quite uh, it was, was quite powerful, and that yeah, and then I went to Nepal and got to study with him, which was which was great. That is brilliant. It's, brilliant. it's I'm laughing. Uh, one thing you said, you said it. Uh, you know, you're saying. The dream was quite brilliant. I'm thinking like 
you know, we'll get to the whole free will thing later, but like who should take credit for the brilliance of that dream, yeah, you know, yeah, because it's funny. Yeah. Well, it's funny because some people are inclined to, to, to take, if you consciously wrote that story, it would seem right. immodest for you to say, you know, my story is brilliant. But for some yeah. reason, you saying my dream was brilliant. No one, it doesn't add trip. It doesn't, you know, trigger that uh, immodesty. People get yeah. what that means. And I think yeah, that's, yeah. it's right. interesting. I just wanted to. Yeah. Double click on that. Right. And then there's the question, are we ever more responsible for our thoughts than we are in dreams? Right. 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 Yeah. yeah. How, how would yeah. we come to the answer to that question using scientific methods? I don't think there is any scientific method that'll adjudicate that answer. But right. um, we'll, we'll get into that. Yeah. We'll definitely get into it. Um, and just uh, just to close this childhood so we can get to the real meat of the intellectual arguments, um, you were fiction writers uh, and it's maybe even inspiring i heard somewhere that you have in a drawer somewhere uh, a couple novels that you wrote during that 10-year period is, is that true uh yeah i assume they're on one of my hard drives i don't think i have I, I don't know if i have a uh, a hard copy of anything at this point but um yeah I, so when i when i originally dropped out of school it was kind of i had a dual purpose i, I was going to write fiction i was going to write a, a novel and and that's, you know, that just, there seemed to be no reason to stay in school if that was my professional aspiration. I mean, no one cares where you went to school or whether you finished if you write the great American novel. So um, I started doing that and I also got more deeply into studying meditation and, you know, went to India to study with some people and, and spent some time on retreat and then I would come get off and, and write more fiction. Um, but one, once I got sufficiently interested in the nature of the mind, I just started writing. Uh, yeah, I, I, I got bent toward writing nonfiction, and then then I obviously needed to go back to school to to get the the, the bona fides to to do that credibly. So um, that's mm -hmm. what changed for me. But I yeah, and I never when I the, the fiction I wrote it was I never finished something that I felt like okay this is I can really get behind this. I was growing so much as a writer that you know I was kind of uh, sort of the, the you know, I was kind of running across the bridge and it was crumbling behind me. Like every time I finished something, I looked back on it and, and noticed how, how inadequate it was as, you know, it was not something that I was going to want to publish. So you're, you might, you probably won't I pull a, a David I, Eagle. I do not think I'm going to um, uh, publish any of these no, early novels. No. Yeah. I, I say David Eagleman because he's published fiction about consciousness and stuff as well as nonfiction. Yeah. I, um, I could imagine I could imagine writing fiction again or writing a play or writing. I mean, I, I, I could imagine wanting to do that. And it's, you know, finding the time, as you know, is is, is always the is, is the puzzle that needs to be solved here. But I do. Um, yeah, I could imagine doing that. But I, I, I can't quite imagine going back and dusting off the stuff I wrote in my 20s. That that's probably not going to happen. I want to read a sentence that you wrote because I have all sorts of issues with it. And I want to just give you my, my perspective and see okay. uh, what you think. You say, consider what it would actually take to have free will. You would need to be aware of all the factors that determine your thoughts and actions. And you would need to be in complete control of these factors. To me, the sentence kind of reads like you're an implicit dualist in a sense, because who is the you in that sentence? You know, it's obviously right. not, it's obviously not something non-physical because in, in your own view, um, that wouldn't make sense. So the only remaining possibility is that it's your consciousness. And if it's your consciousness, then how is it even enough to generate ultimate free will since consciousness must itself be a physical process? 
So even if it was fully aware of all the influential factors, and even if it were in complete control of them, it would itself still haven't uh, to be a set of physical processes with their own deterministic antecedent causes. Hmm. Also, you know, it seems to me like the role of consciousness is actually pretty large, just indirect. You know, consciousness affects our later choices and actions rather than our immediate ones. So you're absolutely right. You're right when you say that. But I still think it does affect um, the things that is, it's still essential to what people mean by the term free will. And that might get to the crux of this argument. You know, people care mm-hmm. about the potential for growth and the capacity to exhibit self-control of destructive impulses that might detract them from reaching their long-term goals. That's what people really care about when they when they talk about free will. So mm-hmm. I just wanted to get some of your thoughts on this because I, I'm not completely clear I understand that 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 sentence. Yeah, well, I, I, it's not really understandable in in that way. I mean, what you've really just landed on is the problem with the concept of free will. It just it it doesn't. It's an incoherent idea. Insofar as we we actually connect with what people really think they have, the concept makes no sense. I mean, there are versions of this. I mean, as you know, Dan Dennett has tried to purify the concept of free will in ways so as to give us a you know, in his terms, a free will that's worth wanting, right? Like he, you know, there's a yeah. A compatibilist project that that tries to um, say, well, the, the, you know, obviously libertarian what's called libertarian free will doesn't exist. That makes no sense. We can but all agree on that. Here are here are all these other things we have and are, are and are you know right to want, and um, let's just call those free will. Uh, there are several problems with that. One is that it. it is actually a way of just changing the subject. It's just not, you're not actually interacting with what, this, this spurious and spooky and, and incoherent thing that people feel they have. You're not, um, and you're not acknowledging just how many important things shift ethically once you let go of that spooky free will. Uh, I think that things really do change and and they change in ways that, are important not just for our our justice system and you know it just our very concept of justice. They're important for our, our ethical intuitions about just uh, what it means to be a good person and how we should feel in the presence of of um, you know all of the misadventures we have in life of just you know you know colliding with with people who who um, bother us, annoy us, frighten us. You know, I mean, just like what, how should we feel about uh, evil people, right? Like, what is what is what is this whole uh, uh, demarcation of our of our world into the, these concepts of good and evil? How should we think about all that? All of these things shift to to a greater or lesser degree once you get rid of this notion of free will. And Dan Dennett's project acknowledges none of that, right? And that's that's the problem I have. I mean, that's why we he and I have never agreed on this topic. Um, he, you know, the analogy I use is, you know, that we're living in, in a world where most people believe in Atlantis, right? They believe all the the spooky things people tend to believe about Atlantis. They believe in an underwater kingdom and a, you know, just a, 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 some uh, prior civilization that had all the answers and then got submerged. And, you know, and, and you know, like that's what really preoccupies them. And Dan comes along saying, no, 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 no. You, you, do you realize Atlantis is actually Sicily. And here are all the reasons why Sicily and Atlantis just, you know, just historically and it would get, you go into the, what Plato was writing and it's pretty clear he might have been talking about an island in the Mediterranean and here's the argument. And OK, so now let's talk about Sicily. 
right? Okay, we can talk about Sicily, but Sicily is not Atlantis, right? Sicily is not what people think that was, it's not what has infatuated generations of people who've been talking about Atlantis. And people are infatuated by this idea that, again, this is just libertarian free will, that they could have done otherwise, right? Like it, it, it seems to most people that if you rewound the movie of their life to a few seconds ago, they could have thought or acted or wanted or intended and therefore behaved differently than they did. And when you do something that angers me, if you if you say something that offends me, or you do something that, you know, you break a promise, you do you do something. My anger also tends to presuppose that ability in you to have a moment ago to have done otherwise. Like you should have done otherwise, right? I'm pissed now because you shouldn't have done that, right? And 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 when you actually trace the, the, the you know the, my my emotional reactivity there down to its roots, I am relating to you differently than I would be relating to a gust of wind or a, a wild animal or a miscalibrated robot or something else that was also behaving the laws of nature about which I would never say it should have done otherwise, right? Like when, when a machine is malfunctioning, um, I have, I, it may cause tremendous harm in my life, right? Or, or if a wild animal, you know, shows up and starts, you know, if, if, if a, a cougar shows up in my yard and starts attacking me or my kids, that's an, that's a, a horrifying problem to figure out how to solve, right? And, and it certainly would warrant killing the thing if I can do it, right? Um, but at no point am I under the illusion that this is living out the consequences of its free will and that I'm in relationship to the kind of thing that could and should and do, could and should do otherwise if I could rewind the universe to a, to a moment ago. Um, and people, so people, the, the rules ethically and psychologically seem to change entirely for people when you're talking about people. You know, they don't think this way about chimpanzees. They don't think about this way about people with certain kinds of brain damage. So there's a certain layer of human ability, right? Behavioral reg regulation, linguistic production, you know, goal setting, like there's that layer of our humanness, which arguably is, is the, the most important, some of the, certainly some of the most important stuff we do that convinces us that we are not part of the clockwork of the universe anymore. Right. And then there are other spooky ideas that 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 get inserted here where people wonder about their souls. You know, they might have an immortal soul that's somehow pulling the strings of the brain. Or maybe there's kind of some quantum events here that that give us some degree of freedom that, you know, mere monkeys don't have. Right. And all from a scientific point of view, there's no reason to grant any of that credence. But the, the, the crucial piece here, and this is really my, uh, honestly, my only original contribution to this conversation, because this is, for 2,000 years, it's been obvious that People free will didn't this make way. any sense. Yeah. It, I mean, it, it's, the, the problem is it just, it doesn't make any sense. There is no way to describe causality where this, this notion of, of I could have done otherwise uh, makes sense, because uh, randomness doesn't get you there. But the only thing that, that's original that I've contributed to this 
or at least it's original in the in the sense that I didn't get it from anyone else. I mean, I'm sure someone else has has made this precise point because it's there to be made. Is that the, the the starting point for this conversation is deeply mistaken. The, the the starting point for everyone is listen. We know we have free will because we experience it. We have this experience of free will, the experience of I can choose to move my right hand and my left hand, and clearly I'm doing it. No one's forcing me to do it. I can take a long time and decide, and I can go back and forth. Like this is I am the author of my behavior here. I know this from the first person side, but it's very difficult to figure out how to make sense of this in terms of the of the, the streams of causality that I'm not aware of in terms of, you know, gene transcription and, and you know, neurotransmitter behavior and, you know, all of the causes reaching back to the Big Bang that I didn't author that that are, you know, the state of the universe that accounts for me for what I'm doing, you know, whether it's deterministic or random, all of that causality it's hard to map free will onto all of that, but I know I have it from the experiential side, right? The, the truth is that is an illusion, right? It's not even an illusion. I mean, my, my point is that the, the illusion of free will isn't even there if you look closely at it. So there is no, there, there is no mystery to solve experientially, right? Everything about your experience is totally compatible with determinism or, or determinism plus randomness, neither of which gives you this freedom people think they have. But honestly, your your behavior right now, your emotion, your intention, your thought is totally compatible with a the most deterministic picture possible. Like like the the, the novel of your life is already written. Say, let's say let's say we live in a block universe where the future exists just as much as the past, right? Where there's literally zero degrees of freedom. There's no such thing as possibility. There's only what is actual, mm-hmm. right? Like, so like the next thing you think and do, you know, your reaction to the thing I'm saying now is, is already written, right? Let's say that's true. I'm not saying that's the universe we live in, but I am saying that your experience of yourself in the world in this moment is totally compatible with that sort of universe. So there really is no problem to solve here. Now there's, there are many things that follow and don't follow from that, but we, we simply do not have an experience of free will. We have an experience of, of there being a difference between voluntary and involuntary action. I and mean, we can talk about the things we do experience, but free will uh, is just not something that is, that it's impossible to find a place in your subjectivity to make sense of the claim. It's no more, it's no, it makes no more sense subjectively than it does objectively or, or in, a, in terms of third person causes and effects. You're really hung up on the magical free will part of this. Uh, of this, um, it's not. It's not hung up. It, it, it is what people mean. It is when when you have someone who I disagree. feels that that someone should be punished for the really punished because they deserve their punishment. Desert the just desserts, right? Right. That right. is someone who feels that the 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 logic of of retribution is anchored to libertarian free will. Not that their genes and their environment 100% conspired to make them do what they did. It seems like the argument you're making is besides the point, though, because I think compatibilist free will, when you really look at the philosophy of mind literature on compatibilist free will, I think it's a lot more like full conceptions of free will than Sicily is like Atlantis in your analogy. Because 
you know, the point is that let me let me let me outline what I think the why what you're saying is besides the point, and you tell me sure. why I'm wrong. Uh, I'd love to hear why I'm wrong if I'm wrong. Um, it seems like people can do all the things they care about if they think that they care about making choices that are somehow uncaused. They just aren't understanding what that literally means, as you point out. What people really mean when they insist that free will is important is they don't want to feel coerced. They think of causes as sources of coercion, but that's a confusion. I think people want to make choices that are consistent with their own goals and be able to deliberate about the causes where their desires aren't totally clear, and they can do those things. And it's pretty clear their consciousness participates causally in the in that process. Well, well I, I would dispute that. I think that's uncertain, but... I mean, the Roy uh, Baumeister did a, a global review of the literature and all this. You know, you focus on the Libet, Libet, I don't forget how you pronounce it, L-I-B-E-T studies. Yeah. But that was that doesn't really get at the issue because when you actually look at the role of consciousness as playing a causal role in human behavior, you see it's a very pervasive, strong effect of consciousness. I guess the way I view the situation is that um, we have certain degrees of freedom um, in depending on uh, the role of the mix of conscious and unconscious processes that we can mm. bring to bear to a task at uh, our conscious at any moment of time. And you don't see there being uh, wiggle room there in in the degrees of freedom of of a meaningful sense of the term of free will of what people care about. Well, well my criticism of free will is happening on another level and, and bringing in consciousness is is. Consciousness is additionally a, a difficult thing to talk about, right? So, yeah. So I'm familiar with Baumeister's work on consciousness and and agency, um, but it's it doesn't get at the the issue that I'm raising here. So I mean, for instance, there are certain things I'm conscious of, right? And I'm conscious, and and they seem to have a relationship to my behavior, right? So I'm conscious of. Um, you know, just uh, deciding to, to do this podcast with you, right? So like, it seemed like consciousness was necessary to get us both here to do this podcast, right? But- I hope we don't say, regret it. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. Yeah. Um, but the, um, so so to decide to do something in the future, to to organize your behavior such that you actually arrive at the appointed hour- That's what to, people care about, right? Right. Well, so this this is this is voluntary behavior, and it is um, it's it's in conformity with various goals and promises, and um, you know it's it's hard to get uh, chickens to behave any anything like this, and um, there's really no other animal that we know of that does a good job of organizing their behavior in this way, and we seem to do it based on uh, consciously. Uh, thinking thinking about certain things and paying attention to certain things. And there's something that – to, to say that it's conscious is to say that, that there's a qualitative character to all of that. And, and there's there's something that it's like to be me deciding to do a podcast with you and then you know showing up and being here and, and making small mouth noises of the sort that I'm now making. And um, yes, this is all illuminated by consciousness in our case. Now, the question is – one, what 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 is really going on there? And I mean, first of all, everything that I that that either of us is conscious of is being promoted into consciousness on the basis of neural activity of which we're not conscious, right? So there's a there's a kind of base layer of neurophysiological causality that we can't inspect, and that is simply producing it's producing every like I'm getting to how am I getting to the end of this sentence, right? It's in conformity with the grammar of English somehow. 
sometimes, right? I make errors. I sometimes I notice them. I mispronounce certain words. I, you know, but, but basically I'm, you know, somehow I'm getting to the end of the sentence in something like grammatically correct form. And I can't inspect the micro events that are, I'm not conscious of any of the micro events that are allowing me to do that, right? So there's a, there's, there's all the unconscious processing that our conscious phenomenology sits on top of. Now, the question is, and this is, you know, essentially a criticism of, of what Baumeister was up to there. There's much, much of what we seem to do consciously, it remains mysterious why consciousness need be associated with any of these things, right? Like we could imagine building robots that were, that could pass the the Turing test that could do all of these things without there being something that it's like to be those robots, right? And so it, it would be, and and then maybe that's not in fact possible. Maybe consci- maybe a certain level of intelligent behavior just produces consciousness. You know that that you know the jury's still out I on li- that. I but. like that. I like the idea that free will evolved in humans. You don't you don't like that argument at all. Well, no. It well, but what would free if we could if we build a robot that can do a podcast that can agree to do a podcast that will show up at the appointed hour that will put it in its calendar and that will that that will have a. A, 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 Turing, a Turing test passing conversation with you at what point in our building in w- at what point in the manufacture of that robot and in your interaction with it, however pleasant, will you imagine that we inserted free will into its code? You know, from my perspective, it's just when we've been able to give it conscious control in some way to be able to override its programming, so to speak. You know, I mean, humans but, but evolved I, an amazing capacity. Program. It can't override its programming. Of it's course, just, we are just. So, of course, we are just our biology. What else would we be? But isn't the point that our biology encompasses all the interesting stuff that we are? I mean, you could still say the robot. It means something for the robot to, to, to be a unique, a unique robot, right? I mean, don't don't you don't you think that that the interesting thing is that you know the bio that the biology encompasses you know all the unique aspects of, of what Sam Harris is and who Sam Harris is, including your unconscious. And your consciousness, but but so the, the things of which I'm unconscious, right? So so here's here's the um, I'm just trying to think of how to how to get it, get at this so as to have it have the point land. Cool. Um, Thanks for listening to this episode of the Psychology Podcast. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in on the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com. That's thepsychologypodcast.com. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the show, and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics 
in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at First, first Listen. Listen. This season... We're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.